Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Milos Stalik in today for Jerome McDonald. Jerome has the day off, but you won't get reruns from us this Thanksgiving. So sit back for some good conversation and holiday fun. We start with a talk I had with Lisa Jackson, a filmmaker and artist working with the National Film Board of Canada. And we discussed a term you may not have heard before, indigenous futurism. We have a clip from Lisa's latest work. Lisa, welcome to Worldview. Thank you. Your most recent piece, which was your first venture into virtual reality, was set in Toronto, and it's called Bidabon. Describe it for us, and what was the concept? How did it come about? Give us a sense of what it was and what you were trying to do. Yeah, so it's actually pronounced Bidabon, which means Bidabon first light. It's a word for dawn in Anishinaabemowin or Ojibwe. It's a virtual reality experience, uh, which takes about eight minutes to go through. So you put on the headset. It grew out of actually a really long time interest of mine and the way we might experience the world differently through the worldviews in native or indigenous languages. It's a future Toronto that the user goes through, which is radically different. So it's based on to scale architectural drawings of the central downtown square in Toronto called Nathan Phillips Square, right in the middle of City Hall, the courthouses, uh, things like that. So it's really the huge center of Toronto and in many ways of Canada. But this future world we altered, but in a very realistic way. So you have a subway station where there's holes in uh, the ceiling and these kind of greenery is growing all around and the subway track area is filled with water and there's canoes loaded up with goods to kind of move around. And then you move from a subway environment to Nathan Phillips Square on the ground level to this big open city square, which also is radically changed with the main squares turned into a sort of a huge pond or a small lake and there are ravens and the concrete's crumbling and covered in greenery as well. There's a third sort of general location, which is up on the rooftop of a huge skyscraper nearby where you can look out and see kind of the entire city affected in this way. And throughout the piece, you hear various intervals things being spoken in the three languages that would traditionally have been spoken in the Toronto area, which is Wendat, Anishinaabemowin, or Ojibwe, and Ganyan Geha, which is also known as Mohawk. So it's been described by some people as a scenario that's post-apocalyptic, but you kind of resist that definition? Yeah, well, I do. And I think it's very telling because 
We definitely have a future where a lot of the current structures aren't uh, active anymore. You know, we do not have Uber drivers. We don't have cars. There's probably not any more of the complex cultural things that we have now. So I get that interpretation. But it is a future where there are humans and where there's a lot of life. In fact, a lot more different types of life in this city square uh, than there is right now. And there's no bullet holes. There's no sign of violence of any sort. And so I think it's quite telling that we don't actually even have a term for an alternate future where our current societal systems aren't in place, except for an apocalypse. You know, one of the things I point out is depending where you put yourself, if you're an indigenous person, for example, the apocalypse happened a few hundred years ago. Right. And so this apocalypse, which happened a couple of hundred years ago, many indigenous filmmakers have been focused on cultural preservation. They seem to be kind of the first order of what they thought was important, preserve the customs, preserve the language, try to preserve the art, the artifacts in any shape or form. But you think that's enough or are you trying to go in some way beyond that? Yeah, that's a good question. In some ways, the inspiration for the piece came out of time that I've spent in a lot of Indigenous communities across Canada. As a filmmaker, I've kind of worked in various places, both in Indigenous communities in the middle of cities and also in remote areas. You know, one place that comes to mind that's pretty inspiring for me is there's quite a large reservation uh, not too far from Toronto that's called Six Nations. Mm -hmm. About 10,000 people live there. And there are a lot of people there that have, through language programs, become totally fluent in Mohawk. And their ceremonies are strong. Their cultural ways are incredibly strong. And when I met people who are living there, you know, they have an immersion language school for their children on the reservation and things like that. What happened was it feels to me like there was so much danger for all these cultural pieces that you mentioned that preservation was and still is incredibly important. But the next stage of that is sort of reintegrating so that in some ways your life is sort of based on those understandings and that they can adapt and evolve. And I think what Bedobin, my VR piece in part, is about trying to get out from underneath the idea that anything that is native uh, can only really exist or be useful in a past that's long ago and not really relevant anymore. And it's an assertion of the fact that the ideas and the art and the culture, but in particular, the thought worlds are as relevant today as they ever were. They just sort of took a very large hit with colonization, but they still exist. And in many cases, they're thriving. And in particular, I read the news and I'm aware that the earth is kind of facing an environmental crisis. And so beyond the kind of cultural pieces where we think, oh, wouldn't it be nice, you know, if these languages or dances or art forms were preserved? I think that the way of thinking in these languages, uh, when you dig into them, it's incredibly complex. You're listening to Worldview. I'm Milo Stelic speaking with filmmaker Lisa Jackson about her most recent virtual reality piece, Bidabin, and indigenous filmmaking in Canada. One of the things that I've seen happen, and it's to me most obvious, particularly in an area like African cinema, has to do with filmmakers 
who get trained, who have access to the technology, who become proficient, but basically how they become proficient, how they can work is only on the level of what would really be colonialist narratives, essentially not being able to practice their work or practice their art on any other terms besides those which are being imposed by what essentially at one point was the colonialist culture. Yeah, well, I think you're absolutely right. There is a dominant form of storytelling, which is the Euro-Western one, right? right? Just by nature of colonization, uh, it works, it's great. There's many fabulous films and other art forms based on it. But there are other ways of conveying story even going back to language, even the idea of time as linear is kind of a Western concept. And in many cultures, time would be seen as more circular, sort right. of in keeping with seasons and cyclical rounds of nature, etc. So you might find cultures that have that more circular sense of time, the way they create story will reflect that. I think that we're, at least in Canada, we're entering into a time where I think that that cultural relativity of realizing that there are other ways to tell stories and the kind of humility to recognize, you know, in our case, we have a lot of government funders, uh, which I could call the gatekeepers. Maybe they're becoming more open to, well, maybe we don't even know some types of stories that could be told. And maybe those voices and those perspectives need to be shared. You know, over the last, I would say, 10 to 15 years, there have been a growing number of festivals for Indigenous filmmakers. And I've been part of those that whole time. You know, there's uh, Imaginative, the biggest one is right here in Toronto. You know, there's also parts of the Berlin Film Festival that focus on Indigenous right. cinema. Uh, Sundance, of course, has been a champion for Indigenous cinema. But we see now there's an Aboriginal festival in Australia, a Maori one in New Zealand. Like around the world, we're getting more and more films that are being made from an Indigenous perspective. And what's more, we're all getting to meet each other. And in many ways, we see similarities or we gain inspiration from each other's work. So it's very interesting because we think of cinema as a national kind of art form in many respects. But if you look at Indigenous cinema, it's really inspired by global perspectives that are nonetheless really rooted to a person's place, whether that's the Sami in Norway or Aboriginal folks in Australia or Canadian nations. You're listening to Worldview. I'm Milos Tedic speaking with filmmaker Lisa Jackson, uh, whose most recent VR installation is called Bidavan. What potential does technology and specifically video technology or digital technology do you think offer to indigenous groups? Yeah, I mean, that's a fairly broad question. I can speak somewhat to this virtual reality that I've just sort of started to work in. And to be honest, I'm not a technology fangirl. I'm not someone who's chasing the latest technology in terms of my work as a filmmaker. Although, interestingly, I seem to be working in various formats. I mean, I'm finishing an IMAX film right now, for example. It's going to be out next year. Um, and in my view, it's always about the idea first and the technology that makes it work second. But in the case of virtual reality, one of the things I find interesting, and interestingly, it was not in the making of it so much as since Bedabin has been experienced now by thousands of people. We had a week-long five-headset installation right in the center of Toronto at the spot that the VR 
is set in September. So we were able to put thousands of people through from all walks of life, not just film festival crowds, but whoever was walking by. And it really struck me the power of this medium, at least in my piece, and when it succeeds well, is that it's quite a visceral experience. It does not feel like you have just watched something. It really feels like you've taken a trip somewhere. You've gone somewhere new and experienced something new because it is so immersive, especially when it's what they call room scale, which means you put on a headset, you put on headphones. So your entire field of view, you can look all around and the audio is excellent quality audio and the world itself is pretty well blocked out. And then with room scale, additionally, to a certain degree, you can move around within that world. So in the case of my piece, you can move around for about 10 feet in any direction. The downside of VR for a filmmaker is that you can't do a shot selection. You can't have a close-up, for example. You can only really create environments. And people are free to move around or look around them as they wish. So character-driven narratives are not very successful so far in VR. But in the case of Bedabin, where I'm putting someone into an immersive future space, the interesting, you could call it a cognitive dissonance, is that people look around and I think their brain says to them, apocalypse, danger, and they're waiting for zombies to jump out. Yet the actual experience of being in a city square full of nature is totally peaceful. And so that's the feeling that they kind of feel in their body while their brain is struggling to make sense of it. And I actually think you know, as an artist, as a filmmaker, if you can sort of create those places for interesting thought on the part of the viewer, the user, that's a step in the right direction. So people tend to experience Badabin first. It can be very physical and very emotional, but they only really think about it a lot after they've taken off the headset. So the term indigenous futurism has been applied to your work and to many of the things that are happening in indigenous cinema. What is this movement? Where is it headed? Is projecting indigenous stories into the future a way to get past these imposed colonialist narratives? I think that's the idea of indigenous futurism is when you operate as a filmmaker or an artist in as an indigenous person, I find I'm constantly from day one having to use my ingenuity to escape this idea that you know, it's a folk tale or that the cultures are primitive and, again, that they only exist in the past. And so even from early on, I used animation, I used various techniques and different genres, uh, blending them together, using a musical form to sort of upend the viewer's expectation of what they were going to get so that they'd really sit up and sort of be present and pay attention to what I was saying in the film. And I think Indigenous Futurism is just that as well. And I think the idea that there could be a renaissance of our cultures and that they might take on a greater space is really attractive, not just to Indigenous people. (laughs) You know, there's a lot of non-Indigenous people, I think, at this point in time who sense uh, that maybe there's something to be learned from these cultures. And so, yeah, it's one way to kind of fast forward out of our current moment because humans basically... You know, they really can't see very far beyond the current moment. They don't have a lot of perspective. And so one way to provoke a sense of a bigger curve of time or perspective 
is to put something in the future. And that's been used since time immemorial, but I think it's particularly attractive to us now. And I think maybe the reason it's growing at the moment is that you know, my mother went to a government-run residential school that was incredibly brutal, and this was part of the history in Canada. And so you get now the first generations where people can really look around and feel that they're not being persecuted in quite a intense way. And so the sense of what would it mean to reclaim our cultures is coming to the floor. Lisa Jackson is an Anishinaabe filmmaker and artist who works with that great organization, National Film Board of Canada. Her virtual reality piece, Bidaben, First Light, premiered at the Tribeca Film Festival. Amila Stelik for Worldview, thank you very much. Thank you. When we come back, I'll talk with filmmaker Julian Schnabel about his new film that takes a totally different angle on artist Vincent van Gogh. I think it's a film you don't want to miss. I'm Milo Stalik, and you're listening to Worldview from WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Milo Stalik in today for Jerome McDonald. There have been a number of films about Vincent van Gogh, but I promise you that Julian Schnabel's new film, At Eternity's Gate, that dives into the mind of the legendary painter is unlike any film on van Gogh that you've ever seen. I recently talked with Julian about his unusual and unique film that stars Willem Dafoe. At Eternity's Gate is now playing in theaters. So, Julian, there have been many films about Van Gogh, probably more than about any other artist. So the subject of Van Gogh's life is in some way tired, but his painting is not. So is that what drew you to it and was the starting point for your film? Well, I didn't want to make a movie because there have been so many movies made about Van Gogh. Everybody thinks they know everything about him. And that's kind of a double-edged sword in a way, right? because everybody thinks they have a personal relationship with him. They're eternally interested in this guy. And it's funny how everybody seems to have some kind of response. For someone who was pretty much ignored when he was alive, it's kind of incredible that parents, when thinking about instilling some kind of art consciousness to a child, mm -hmm. they show work to Van Gogh to their kids somehow. Mm -hmm. And so I've noticed it even more talking about the film than ever, that there's something very direct about his paintings, and I think that they transgress death, and I think they speak to people, which is kind of miraculous. Let's say uh, he died in 1890. People started to get interested in his work after the letters came out in 1912. And then somehow I felt like he's been misrepresented in a sense when he was alive and after he was dead. So I wasn't satisfied, and I felt that maybe there could be a different approach, making a film that wasn't about him as much as it was about being him or being anybody, or that he could be a substitute for every man. And 
There was an Antonin Artaud and Van Gogh exhibition at the Musée d'Orsay about four years ago. Mm -hmm. And there were about 15 paintings we were looking at in a room, and we thought the way we would do it would be not to tell his life story, but if each painting was a story, and then these vignettes were all put together, you have this accumulative feeling at the end of seeing a show, and that could be the feeling that you had after having experienced something a conversation that could have taken place, a scene that might have taken place but wasn't recorded. So we could just approach it with a kind of freedom to where we wouldn't have to be beholding to something that was like a forensic biography. And the biography would not weigh you down in a way, so it really gave you the freedom to do it. And part of the decision was also filming it from a very subjective point of view because... We hear this from the beginning of the film in Van Gogh's voice. Right. It functions kind of the way a painting functions. I mean, you see paintings in the first person. You look at them directly. There's nobody mediating a relationship with the painting. Right. And the way that the movie functions is to where people are talking directly to you. Van Gogh talks to you. You are a fly on the wall somehow, or you are being addressed. And uh, when people talk to him in the film, he's usually alone. And when somebody starts to talk to him, they interrupt his reverie. So there are these stoppages, or it gives you this sense of how he might be fine with the rhythms of nature. But once people enter the landscape or the room, that reverie is broken somehow, and there's this kind of uh, dichotomy between being with people and being alone in nature, or being in society and being with yourself. And the other thing that's kind of interesting about the film is that this, in a way, gets past you having to depict so many of the events, and that so many of the events that you do depict are understated and very controlled, rather than being used in any kind of a dramatic and melodramatic way. For example, the famous episode of The Cutting of His Ear is really handled in a very personal, rational way of how he reasoned about it, rather than exploited for this you know, dramatic effect. Well, I think to name is to numb. And to just illustrate what people think they're going to see ultimately is anticlimactic. But to show people something that they haven't seen or show it to them in a way that they haven't seen it is more rewarding. And I think when Vincent is questioned about why he did it, and he gives these answers, uh, which might not be satisfactory to Dr. Ray, who is judging. But I think a lot of the questions that he answers are questions that people would like to ask him. And when the doctor says, you're confusing yourself, you're confusing yourself with your paintings, and he says, I am my paintings, I think that's true. An interesting aspect of the film is people just don't seem to understand them. They don't mean anything by it. They're not evil by nature. They're just unaware of where he is. Uh, we're using a split diopter, and what that does is it makes the depth of field at the bottom of the screen different than the top, so it's kind of blurry at the bottom, and you feel that he's getting more upset. You have a definite sense that you're seeing Benson's point of view in contrast to an objective lens. Besides the fact that Willem Dafoe gets the chance to I mean, you're not the same with your your mother or your father or your children or somebody you just meet on the street or someone you know well. And I think that Willem gets an opportunity to behave 
with all of these different people, almost in a sense like Pinocchio, um, the lady who owns the bar that is nice to him, or the Dr. Ray, or the Dr. Gaget, the priest, he gets to talk about Vietnam, uh, which the battle in Indochina was raging at that time, and it was going on then, so it was called Tonkin. And uh, the madman who's sitting next to him in the bathtub has a, a wooden seal on it where they're put in there for therapy to calm down. He is talking to him about that. Or, or Van Gogh gets to talk about Shakespeare, because he read Shakespeare in, in English. I mean, he spoke a lot of different languages. And also, when he talks to the priest, and he gets to talk about Christ, who he identified with, I think that there are opportunities for us to say all sorts of things and really go on a trip. Right. You're listening to Worldview. I'm Milo Stelic, speaking with filmmaker and artist Julian Schnabel, whose new film is called At Eternity's Gate, a film about Vincent van Gogh. It seems to me also that your film, in many ways, is one of the rare films that really counters this whole myth that we have about artists and genius, which Van Gogh, in a way, fits very well. You know, the mental illness, uh, destitute, no money, uh, didn't sell his paintings. So this is this whole kind of genius artist myth. And you really show him in a different way as a very intelligent, thinking, literate, concerned, very hardworking human being which is something that artists really are. Well, that's a nice thing for you to say, and it's true. I mean, you might have talent, but if you don't work, it doesn't matter. I mean, he did paint 75 paintings in the 80 days he spent at Auvers-sur-Oise at the end of his life. And you would think if somebody painted that much, they really wouldn't feel like killing themselves when they just ordered some paint, and they were so prolific. Because I think when he was painting, he felt better. At those moments, also, he was an incredible success. Whether he sold a painting or not is irrelevant. Well, I think you frame it very beautifully because at one point in the film that his audience was not born yet, so he was just ahead of his time. And then towards the end of the film is really pretty powerful, is is when you start really talking about Van Gogh and how art is kind of a means of reaching another spiritual level. And you have the scene with Maz Mikkelsen, who plays the priest, and this whole way that Van Gogh explains what painting is and how it's a means for him to reach God, or it could be something spiritual. I mean, it's just, it really gets us into this whole idea of process on the one hand, and then, right. then also on what is there at this edge of eternity. Right. When he says, Christ said that the harvest is not here yet, and um, look towards the invisible. And I think when you're a younger artist, you want people to agree with you, and as you keep going and you realize they can't necessarily understand what you're doing, you don't want to educate them. I mean, there's a line in the movie where he's speaking to Dr. Gaget, and he said, I used to think an artist had to show how to be in the world, but I don't think that anymore. And now I just think about my relationship with eternity. And Dr. Gaget says, what do you mean by eternity? And he says, the time to come. And I think he resolved himself to the fact that he was going to communicate anyway, and that whether people got it or didn't was not his problem. And I think that artists realize that as they get older, that the success or the joy is in the doing, it's not in the acceptance by other people. And I think that was an important aspect of the movie. When 
Dr. Geshe says, why do you paint? And Vincent says, to stop thinking. Is it a form of meditation? No, no, I, I paint to stop thinking. Uh, about what? I stop thinking and I become a part of everything that's inside and outside of me. And that is the place to go and a way to be in the world or to deal with death. We see a lot of uh, Van Gogh painting. You taught Willem Dafoe to paint. We see a lot of the process. And at the same time, what was interesting to me, by the end of the film, I really felt that in a way you found a relationship between camera, camera moves, and painting. So it felt to me almost like every camera move was almost like a brush stroke or paint stroke. Well, um, I hope everybody has the experience that you had when they see the movie. <laughs> well, it's very visceral. You know, every time I saw, first of all, the film is very visceral. I mean, uh, Willem Dafoe's performance is very physical and the way that he's always walking and on the move. So there's a great deal of physicality. And it lends a kind of a rawness and edginess, which is present throughout the film. So every time I saw, you know, another movement of the paintbrush, I really felt like I was at the edge of a thriller and, you know, it was leading to a climax. So well, it's... it's right. that's, that's very, very interesting. I was watching it the other day, and you're watching a guy paint, and there's a scene where this guy is just in an empty room, a kind of a crummy, cold, empty room, and he's sitting in that room looking at a painting that he's not particularly satisfied with, puts it away, sees his shoes on the floor, and starts painting his shoes. Right, right. And he turns the shoes into a painting right and you see willem actually make the painting and i also felt that everybody that's watching the movie is wanting to see how the painting is going to turn out right so there's a drama in seeing if that thing works you know it's not easy to define just what a revelation at eternity's gate is because it's not quite like any other film that you've ever seen and so in a way the only film about another artist that I can compare it to is Tarkovsky's Andrei Rublev, which was in its own way a revelation. And it's a film that goes beyond being a film about Van Gogh. It's about the necessity of art in which in some way each of us who watches it and is able to receive it really feels like they were there or they were perhaps even Van Gogh for a second. Right. Well, you know... I mean, I can't say thank you enough yeah. for your response, but, you know, I love Andre Rublev. Uh, that's one of my favorite films. And you really get a slice of the 15th century in black and white. Right. Uh, and the horrors, and there are things that are important with a big capital I, and then there's things that might not be. But all of these details somehow of the ordinary and the extraordinary are part of the mosaic that makes up the intensity and clarity of what you're being told or shown. So that's why Andrei Rublev was so extraordinary. And it also described what was happening at that time in the world when Andrei Rublev was alive. And somehow when we were also thinking about Gauguin talking with Van Gogh as they're painting out in the field, He's talking about, when Gauguin says to Van Gogh, why do you have to paint from nature? And Van Gogh says, every time I look at nature, I see something I've never seen before. Mm. And Gauguin says to him, yes, but without your eyes, there's no nature. Right. Why don't you paint what you see here? And he was talking about 
uh, science and physics at that time, where he's talking about the field and these discoveries, scientific discoveries that were occurring at that time in the world, where he was saying uh, there's a field, and without somebody receiving the field, there's no experience. The film is called At Eternity's Gate. The director is Julian Schnabel. Thank you very much. At Eternity's Gate is playing now in theaters. After the break, you'll hear a brand new Friday edition of Global Notes, when we'll jam on some African vinyl classics. I'm Milos Talik, and you're listening to Worldview from WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Milos Talik, in today for Jerome McDonald. Now let's get you ready for the weekend with a Friday edition of Global Notes. Worldview's Galilee Abdullah is an ethnomusicologist, and she loves going up into the attic, so to speak, to let you hear some of the best music that you can only find on vinyl or cassettes. And Galilee recently had a jam session with Brian Shimkovitz, founder of Awesome Tapes from Africa. Hi, this is Galilee Abdullah. I'm here with Brian Shimkovitz. He's the founder of Awesome Tapes from Africa. Thanks for joining us, Brian. Thanks for having me. How did you get into the business of reissuing all this music? How did Awesome Tapes start? Well, I studied ethnomusicology at university, and then I studied abroad. So after I spent a year on a Fulbright grant in Ghana doing research on the hip-hop scene, I realized when I came back that writing academic articles wasn't going to do very much for the people that I worked with. Um, and it wasn't even going to spread the knowledge of the music to my fellow countrymen who don't read academic journals. So it really seemed like going in the direction of kind of public ethnomusicology or commercial music industry was going to reach more people if I was going to engage with African music that people don't really have access to in Europe and America and outside. So I kind of fell into doing music publicity because I was into writing and reading about music, and I got the chance to work. I did some internships, basically, and tried to like find a way to get a paid job doing it and working in the music industry. So I spent seven years as a publicist in New York, and during that time, I was just doing the blog as a hobby uh, on the weekends. And it was just a way to like relieve stress and stay sane in this kind of New York work grind. Then a music distribution company got in touch with me and said, hey, if you ever want to ruin your life and start a record label, we love what you're doing with the blog. We would help distribute the music if you want to try to put out records. For a long time, people have been saying, oh, yeah, some of that stuff on the blog, like super into it, would love to hear that on vinyl. Like, I wish that was available to buy. You know, where can I find that to purchase it? So it all just kind of came together and it made sense to try to take it to another level and you know make the music available and contact the artists and do contracts and things like that. So our first track is called Anchinarai Aling by Hailu Mergia. He's an Ethiopian musician. Can you tell us something about him? Yeah, he plays the keyboard and the accordion. 
Um, he plays all different keyboards, and he's famous for doing instrumental music. Uh, he made his name with different bands in the 70s and continued through the 80s and up till now um, doing jazz-influenced Ethiopian music. So I want to know, how did you find this music? Did you spend time in Ethiopia? How did you meet Hailu? Well, um, I basically just Googled him after finding his cassette on a trip to Ethiopia. I spent about a month in Ethiopia doing a kind of tourist visit, just looking around and enjoying the place, and found some cassettes around the country and uh, came home and listened to his. And I just Googled him right away, and I found his phone number online, and I called him, and I said, I would love to work with you um, on reissuing some of these lesser-known recordings that he'd done and also trying to help him get shows. Since we started working together in about 2013, I think, or maybe 2012, he's been playing shows all over the world, and it's really grown into a full-on business for him, where he's traveling every couple months to Europe or Australia, different places, and really has made like a whole new career in the United States and Europe uh, and Canada. You know, he didn't play for 25 years. He was just driving a cab. He didn't have gigs that he could do or that he wanted to do in the D.C. area, so he was just working. So it's been really fun for him. Um, he's getting into his 70s now, but he hasn't lost any energy. The next song is from popular South African musician Penny Penny. This is Shishan Ghani by Penny Penny. Fun. Can you tell us something about Penny Penny, Brian? Yeah, Penny Penny has an amazing story. I mean, he came from a family of 68 children, I believe, somewhere around there. Grew up in relative poverty. Found his way to Johannesburg after working in the gold mines as a child. Got himself a job mopping the floor in a studio and was actually squatting secretly in the studio because he didn't have a place to live. And he was really good at dancing and had this whole style and energy about him. And somebody in the studio saw him one day dancing and singing and said, oh, let me try to record a track with this guy. And so they recorded a track and the label liked it. And so they recorded a whole album and it became really famous. It came out during a period of major change in South Africa in 1994 when you know Nelson Mandela had been freed and South Africa was getting open. And this music that was not in a mainstream language, it's from a very regional language, got embraced by hundreds of thousands of people, and it was a huge success, and it's just crazy fun music. And oh. it has a lot to do with like house music. There's a lot of that influence in there. Right. And so at the time when he was coming up, was the synth pop sound really popular in South Africa, or was this different for them as well? 
Well, one of the things about apartheid that was terrible for the music scene is that the government enforced censorship on the music, and the music that was most promoted on the airwaves was this kind of bubblegum pop music that had a lot of synths and basically apolitical vocals in English that could be easily censored. Uh, So there was tons and tons of synth pop already happening. And then as hip-hop and house music made its way over to South Africa, especially as things started to open up, there was a lot more slower dance music happening like this. And, you know, this music is super, in terms of beats per minute, it's pretty low down there and just really funky, I guess. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so this next song is from Abiyangana Giap. She was a popular Senegalese musician. This is a little bit of Jalal Jalal. something about Abiyangana Diop and also about the Tasu Senegalese um, sound. Sure. Uh, Abiyangana Diop is the most well-known female practitioner of Tasu, which is a kind of vocal, poetic art that a lot of people in Senegal feel like is the roots of rap uh, as they practice it. And it is backed up by heavy, complicated drums, sabar drumming, which is similar to the drumming that you hear in Mbalak, which is the main popular music that people know about from Senegal. That's, you know, for example, it's the music played by Yusu Ndour. So what she's doing, Abiyangana Jop, is the first known recording of Tasu, which normally exists in a live setting. And she went into the studio and made this record, and it got quite popular regionally. And uh, unfortunately, she died quite a few years ago, but the music still lives on. If you go to Dakar, you still find people selling it and listening to it. I see that, you know, this is like one of the more popular reissues coming out of Awesome Tapes. Like Pitchfork gave it an 8 out of 10 and Vogue wrote an article about her. Yeah. (laughs) I was like Googling. (laughs) Oh, Bjork has been DJing like one of her songs. When Bjork does DJ sets, I noticed that she was DJing one of the songs from this. That must feel great as the person who reissued this and was able to share it with other communities around the world i mean yeah it's cool like my thing is like i'm just kind of like a music fanboy and i want to be involved with the music and the musicians and i was sent this cassette by a person at a radio station i think in virginia uh, many years ago and i just freaked out when i heard it and i just wanted to know more and it took me a long time to track down her family after i found out that she was no longer around And I finally went and visited her family. And really, like, the best feeling about all of it is not so much about, like, feeling like I found a cool recording and spread it around, but more meeting the family and helping them get money where they need it. And now I work closely with the grandchildren, and they're just super stoked that people around the world are enjoying their grandmother's music. Right. That's really awesome. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Galilee Abdullah. 
I'm here with Brian Shimkovitz. He's the founder of Awesome Tapes from Africa. This next musician is also someone that I really love, and she's really popular in Ethiopia. This is a new release coming from Awesome Tapes, correct, from Asnak Echwarku? This one I'm super excited about, yeah. And so we'll hear a little of Mechal Queen Leila Sel. And so in this song, you hear Asnak Ich on her um, karar, which is like what she's really well known for playing. It's a five or six string instrument, um, Ethiopian instrument. Can you tell us more about Asnak Ich and her music and how you got to um, reissuing it? Yeah, I mean, she's probably the most famous and most kind of legendary artist that I've been able to work with uh, through this whole project. I mean, you know, as a non-Ethiopian, it's hard to even wrap my head around how big of a deal she is. But her talents ran the spectrum from dance and theater to acting and, of course, traditional music. And she was just quite a character from her interviews and the videos that I've seen of her and read about her. She just lived life the way she wanted. And in terms of fashion, she blew people's minds and was controversial and trend-setting and always ahead of her time. And this music came to me through Hailu Merkia because I had been asking him, you know, what other recordings have you done that were interesting that we should check into? And he said, oh, I once made a record with Aznakesh. And I, like, couldn't even believe it. Mm. Um, and then he sent it to me. And I was like, oh, man, you know, I have this tape in my collection, but there's no info on it about who plays on it. So I had no idea that that was him playing in the background. And so somebody whose music a lot of people already know and whose story has already been told quite a lot, uh, to have this new piece of the puzzle that's her complicated life and her complicated talent is so interesting to me. And I was able to get in touch with her, you know, through Hailu and the help of one of the people at the Musicians' Union in Ethiopia and spoke with her daughter um, because Aznakesh passed away a few years ago. And her daughter was happy to work with us on this. And she's been super helpful. And she provided us with really beautiful family photos. Mm. And so now we're going to move back to West Africa to a lesser-known musician. This is Bome Nenyuam by Atakak.
Brian, tell us about Atakak. Yeah, Atakak is a Ghanaian musician who recorded this tape in Canada after many years of kind of being a backing musician for uh, Ghanaian bands that would come through Canada. He was living and working there at the time. And he put together a studio in his house using secondhand instruments and just kind of DIY'd this whole thing. And it's just so interesting and funky and it's very Ghanaian but it's also very connected to other types of music like hip-hop and house music that were happening at the time and the cassette I found quite accidentally many years ago in Cape Coast Ghana and it was the first cassette that I posted on the blog when I started the blog in 2006 and it's really kind of like a manifesto for what the whole Awesome Tapes from Africa project is all about it's just kind of surprising yet representative and interesting music from Africa uh, that you wouldn't probably find very easily unless you went to the place. So Atakak took a long time to find him, but we tracked him down after like eight years of cold calling and stalking uh, many people <laughs> all over the world. I finally found him and now he's been playing shows and he's achieved a lot of success playing big festivals and stuff like that all over Europe and the UK and Australia. That's really great. So did you work on a documentary? Yeah. So I hadn't met him face to face, so I thought it would be cool to go there and actually film hanging out and talking to him and exploring his city, Kumasi. It's sort of the second largest city. It's like the second city of Ghana. So we went there with a film crew and hung out with him for a while, and he showed us a lot of stuff about his life. Um, you know, he has like this whole farm outside of his house where he grows tons of vegetables and fruits and eats a lot of food from his garden and just has this really chill life. Yeah, he's a really beautiful human being. So tell us what else you're most excited about for the future of Awesome Tapes. Obviously, we just talked about the upcoming Asnak Etch release, but is there anything else? Getting ready to announce another record coming out in January by a musician from Senegal who lives in Paris who plays the Kora. So that's sort of two harp albums in a row uh, that we're doing. Um, he's already confirmed some shows around Europe, so I'm excited about that. And where else can we find Awesome Tapes? Uh, awesometapes.com and Awesome Tapes from Africa on Instagram and Awesome Tapes on Twitter and, you know, all that stuff. But just check out the blog and listen to some music. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us, Brian. Thank you. So after you've recovered from overeating and underexertion, come back on Monday when Jerome McDonald talks with Harvard professor Stephen Walt when he'll tell us how foreign policy elites like himself screwed up the world. Walt's new book is The Hell of Good Intentions. Now how's that for some post-Thanksgiving joy? So stay tuned for that and more Monday on Worldview. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Viviana Garcia Blanco for production assistance. I'm Milos Stalik, in today for Jerome McDonald, and you were listening to Worldview from WBEZ.